Good morning. Welcome to Rivermont on this Reformation Sunday, and I invite you to turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 as we continue our series on Paul's letter, his second letter, to the Corinthians this morning by examining the grace of repentance. As you may know, we've been studying this letter as we've looked at it through the lens of the reach of grace into our lives, and we see that as Paul had written a letter of rebuke earlier to this church, they had repented. And Paul was now speaking to them of this grace of repentance that had taken root in their hearts. What does it look like? 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. Paul wrote, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see what you have for us this morning in your word. Teach us about the nature of repentance and change us as your children. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 499 years ago, tomorrow, Martin Luther did something that initiated a sea change in the world. He nailed to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral his 95 theses. Now, don't get the wrong idea. These, the cathedral door was the bulletin board for debate among the university faculty there at Wittenberg. So Brother Martin wrote his 95 theses, his 95 points for debate in Latin, for the purpose of debating with his fellow university professors, and he nailed them to the door so that they would talk about these things. The immediate concerns had to do with a monstrous construction project taking place in Rome. It was the building of the new St. Peter's Cathedral, which was just about to completely bankrupt the church. And in order to raise additional funds, the Pope began to allow the pushing of the sale of indulgences. That is, if you gave money to the construction project, then your time in purgatory, your time of your family in purgatory, could be reduced. That's one of the most notorious hawkers of indulgences Tetzel preached. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. He was, great, uh, he was a great preacher. He just led people astray. Luther wanted to start a debate among the university faculty about these abusive practices in Christianity. So he wrote in Latin. He wrote so he could have a scholarly debate with his fellow professors. He nailed these 95 theses to the door of the cathedral. And some unsung, unknown hero of the Reformation translated these 95 theses from Latin into German and took these 95 theses in German to a printing press so that they would go all over Europe and begin a change in the world that none of them could ever dream. But where did those disputations begin? We might expect that he would start with some of those themes that would come to define the Reformation in years ahead. But he didn't. His first thesis was not about justification through faith alone, which became to dominate the entire movement. The first thesis was not about the priesthood of all believers, which restored a holiness to all of our work. Not just ministerial work, but all work is valuable before the Lord. The debate didn't begin with salvation by grace alone either. He started with repentance. The very first thesis 
of Luther's 95 that he wanted the university faculty to debate was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. When our Lord and Master said, repent, he intended the entire life of a believer be a life of repentance. Because Luther's idea was that repentance is not only the way into the kingdom of God, it's every step of life in the kingdom of God. Repentance and faith. Repentance is the growth plan for the Christian faith. We never outgrow our need to repent because until we are face to face with Jesus, we will never outgrow our sinful heart. We continue a lifestyle of repentance until the Spirit completes His work of transformation in us. And in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul speaks to repentance. And he puts two ideas in sequence that we often make overlap. The ideas are grief and repentance. Regret and repentance. Remorse and repentance. But they're not the same. Those are not exactly the same thing. They're not identical. Feeling sorry for our sin is not exactly what the Bible means when it calls us to repentance, the kind of Christian lifestyle that Luther calls us to. There's joy in repentance, but not so much in remorse or regret. Look again at verse 10. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, while they may be begin in a similar place. Remorse or sorrow masquerades as repentance. It's a counterfeit. Grief and sorrow and remorse is simply a step on the path of repentance. There's a sequence. There's grief and then we are led to repentance. How do we see the difference here in the text? Well, first we see that counterfeit repentance leads to death. And one of the first, one of the best biblical examples of a counterfeit repentance, or as Paul puts it, a worldly grief that produces death, is Judas in Matthew 27. You remember the story. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It was Judas who told the authorities where Jesus would be. It was Judas who fingered Jesus for arrest. And after that arrest, Matthew 27 said that Judas the betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned and he returned to the chief priests and returned to the elders and tried to give back all that blood money. But you may remember the leaders replied, what's this to us? They didn't want their money back. The deed had already been accomplished. And they couldn't care less how Judas felt about what he had done. So Judas threw the money down in the temple and he went out and hanged himself. We can readily see that Judas felt horribly about what he had done, right? He felt a deep sorrow. He felt remorse for his betrayal. He even tried to make restitution. He tried to give the money back. What's more, he called what he did sin. He didn't pull punches and issue a non-apology apology before the cameras. He accurately described his actions. He said, I have betrayed innocent blood. Judas felt sorrow. Judas felt grief. He felt remorse deeply. And that grief literally ended in death for him. It ended in suicide. But it wasn't repentance. Because being sorry doesn't always indicate that we have repented. Because we can be sorry over the wrong thing that ultimately has nothing to do with God whatsoever. Judas's sorrow did not lead to repentance, but rather it led to death 
Judas' sorrow was a worldly grief, or another way to translate what Paul says here is a grief according to the world, a grief before the world, a grief of getting caught. And he saw his plan backfire on him, and it humiliated him. Here's the principle. Counterfeit repentance leads to death because it deals with consequences. It doesn't deal with the sin that offended the Lord. Counterfeit repentance leads to death because it deals with the consequences. It deals with getting caught. It doesn't really have much to do with the sin, with the offense before the Lord. Even in his sorrow, we see Judas remain self-centered. Even in his confession, he was looking for ways to feel rid of his remorse. As he threw the money onto the temple floor, it's as though he was saying, here's your money back. Take it so I can feel innocent again. Take my guilt from me so that I can feel clean because I feel so dirty. Judas went to the leaders. He went to the world to try to remove his guilt. His was a grief, a remorse, a guilt before the world, according to the world. He was hoping that these men could remove his sense of guilt. Of course, Judas felt sorry. Because being forced to deal with the consequences of our sin and our actions can be extremely hard-hitting in our lives. He wanted immediate relief from these actions, these feelings. He wanted to feel free from the consequences of what he had done to send Jesus to the cross. And his efforts to get rid of that grief didn't work, though. To him, there seemed like no other option than death because he didn't have any way to manage his consequences. He didn't have anyone who could take away that deep feeling of guilt in his heart. His was a worldly grief. A grief according to the world. A grief before the world. And it led to death. Much of what may initially sound like repentance in our lives can be counterfeit too. We can get stuck in grief over consequences. Grief over getting caught instead of grief Because of our offense against the Lord. It's grief before the world rather than grief before God. Let's take a couple of examples and examine. Is it remorse or is it repentance? How about this? What if I were to say, I'm sorry that you took my words in the wrong way. Please forgive me. Is that repentance? Nope. That's a little bit of remorse jujitsu. It kind of shifts, it shifts the blame around. It focuses the blame on you took my words the wrong way. So you're really the one at fault. And I want to sound humble-ish. So I'm going to apologize for what you did. But that's not repentance at all. It's really not even remorse. How about if I say, I'm sorry for hurting you. Please forgive me. Now that sounds a little bit better, doesn't it? But still, it's focusing on the consequences. It's focusing on hurting you rather than owning up to what I have done or my critical or my condemning words or what I have done as the means of hurting you. You see, I'm still grieved over the consequence of the broken relationship, really not grieved over the offense itself. The problem that needs to be fixed is the breach rather than what I have done to cause the breach. It's not repentance. It's remorse. Well, let's say that you've made a terrible choice. You've made a mess of your life and you've potentially to lose your family. Is it remorse or is it repentance when you say, Honey, 
I sinned against you and I've sinned against the kids. I let you down. I let down the church. I can't believe this mess I've made of my life. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I want to change. Not to be too critical, but what remains the focus? It's the consequences. The shame of losing your spouse, the the shame of, of losing your family, the shame of losing your reputation before the church. That was the focus. That's what's grieved. It's a worldly grief. It's a grief according to other people rather than a grief before the Lord. It sounds so much more like bring me relief from my pain rather than restoring the glory of God because I'm a sinner. What I've done to cause this pain. Friends, as long as our hearts are preoccupied with getting rid of our feelings of guilt or shame or managing consequences or figuring out how to get out of being caught, we're going to be stuck in remorse because that's a grief before the world. It's a grief because we've been caught in the eyes of the world. It's not genuine repentance. And at the end of the day, when we are more concerned with consequences, our lives are going to continue to feel like death because none of us are wise enough or powerful enough or strategic enough to be able to foresee and prevent all the consequences from coming home to roost. We can't avoid them. We can't get rid of them. They're going to come home to roost. And if our remorse is about grief before the eyes of the world, we will never be able to get that shame out of our lives. Counterfeit repentance leads to death. But true repentance leads to salvation. Look again back at verse 10. Again, there is a godly grief that has a direction, but instead of producing death, it says godly grief leads to repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Do you hear the movement? Grief isn't the same as repentance. Rather, feeling sorrow or grief sets our feet on the path of repentance if it's godly, if it is repentance or grief according to God, grief before God. That's what Paul literally says. Godly grief is grief before God. And that leads to a repentance and salvation without regret. And that little phrase is so important because it distinguishes the core between counterfeit and true repentance. Grief before whom? That's the question. True repentance is rooted in the truth that at its nub, it is God who is the primary one who is offended by our sin. Our sins against one another are terrible because they violate God's law, because they violate God's command, because they violate God's best for us. And every single sin, the sins that we've managed to hide and the sins that are in public are against the Lord. And if we want our hearts to change, if we want to move past grief over consequences and we want to genuinely change, we have to realize that it is God first whom we've offended in our sin. He is the one who is the holy judge. He is the one who is a law. He is the one who has given us commandments and we have violated His law, His commands, His best for the world. We have sinned first and foremost against God. And our business, first and foremost, is with Him before it is managing the consequences or the fallout of our consequences. We may be able to with other people But we can't go to a holy, a perfectly holy God and just say, I'm going to make it up to you. I'll fix it. I'll turn it around. 
I'll, I'll, I'll make it all right. We can't do that before holiness. If our grief is truly before the Lord, then it leads us to do something else. What do we do with our grief before God? We repent, Paul says. And repentance is a word for turning. What Paul is saying to us this morning is that if we grasp that our sin is first before the Lord, before the face of God, and we want to turn away from that sin, we have to first turn toward God. We turn away from our sin to the Lord. And God in our turning and our repentance may not undo the consequences when we repent. We may have to face broken relationships. We may have to deal with the shattered trust in a broken relationship. We may have to manage a painful loss and confess it in the way when we turn away from our sin. But what God does promise, rather than removal of consequences, God promises when we turn away from our sin, He promises Himself. And that's so much better. When we turn from our sin and turn to the Lord, God promises that He is there and He can be found. And that's the really good news that lies at the heart of what Luther was doing in his first thesis. When we turn away from our sin, we don't turn to good works and try to make it up to God. But instead, we turn to the Lord for salvation without regret. We can turn away from our sin by His power and toward a holy God without fear because Jesus has already gone to the cross to cover the penalty for our sin and the penalty for our rebellion. When we turn away from our sin and our rebellion to our God, we are turning to a loving Heavenly Father with His arms as open wide as the cross, ready to shower us with love and with affection and fellowship and restoration and reconciliation. When we turn away from our sin and turn to the Lord, we don't turn to a stern Heavenly Father with His finger out shaking it in our face and saying, look at what you've done. You better go fix this problem. Maybe our experience in this life, maybe that's what we have done to our children. Our stern face with a finger wagging at them. But that's not our Heavenly Father. When we turn from our sin to the Lord as a lifestyle, we do so because we have nothing to fear from Him in punishment because our turning is a turning to the God who sent His Son to the cross for us. Our grief drives us to the cross where we find smile and delight and fellowship with God. And that's what's behind Paul's idea when he said we turn without regret. Follow his thought here. He says, our regret or our grief over sin, when we see it as a violation before God, and we turn to the cross for salvation, it leads us without regret any longer. Did you see that? Our grief or our regret leads to repentance without regret. Do you see that? What Paul is saying is our regret taken to the cross leaves us without regret. That's what he's saying. It's like the... Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, when he comes to the cross and he has that pack of guilt on him and it weighs him down and he's stooped over because of all of his guilt and his shame and he comes to the cross and the pack is taken off. He's given freedom. He's given release from all of that grief and all of that guilt and all of that shame. Our grief over our sin taken to the cross remains at the cross because our guilt was nailed to the cross with Jesus. There is a joy in salvation 
because our fellowship with God is restored and His delight reigns over His children when we repent. There is a joy in repentance because we know that God has done something about the stain of sin in our lives and He has done the work of removing it by His grace. Regret, grief taken to the cross leaves us without regret and without grief. But if you have walked long enough in the Christian life, you will know that the devil, the one whom the Bible calls the accuser, hates when regrets are left at the foot of the cross, doesn't he? If he is unsuccessful in keeping you from feeling regret or grief over your sin, if he can't do that, then he's going to do the next best thing. And the next best thing is to keep you from dropping your grief and your guilt at the cross. That's his work. That's what the devil does. He, the accuser specializes in a wallowing kind of guilt. In a lingering guilt. A, an unspecific sense of shame. Or an unspecific sense, I just don't measure up. I don't, I don't, I don't count. I don't matter. I, I'm, I'm not worthy. I don't, I, I'm not acceptable. That's what the accuser does. The accuser seeks to keep upon us that deep bondage that Jesus died to remove. Friends, if your eyes are opened to your need for forgiveness before the Lord, rest assured that the devil is going to try to keep you from feeling the forgiveness that Jesus has given to you through His work on the cross. But regret, grief, guilt left at the cross leads to salvation without regret and grief and guilt. And once we've turned from our sin to the Lord, then we are enabled to turn toward one another in humility, no longer attempting to manage the consequences, but be honest about what's happened. Because repentance is evidenced by a fruit worked in our, in our lives by the Spirit. In other words, repentance shows up by a life that is changing, a life that is not perfect, A life that's not final, but a life that is changing. A life that's in process. And we see it even in this text. We see it in comparing verses 7 and 11. These brothers and sisters went from indifference to the truth to an earnestness or a longing for truth in relationships. It's a change that the Spirit was working. They went from rejection of Paul and his gospel to a zeal for the gospel message in verse 11. They went from being fooled by lies to being indignant over the offense of having the lies among them and tearing them apart in the body. Repentance is evidenced in a changing life as the Holy Spirit produces change, produces His life among us in the body. As we are led to deal with with our sins before the Lord, the Holy Spirit will enable us to deal with our consequences of having harmed one another as evidence that He has removed our guilt. When we start with a grief or a guilt before God, we can turn to one another in humility and seek to love better again. Back to our example earlier. Instead of consequence management of saying, I'm sorry you got hurt, please forgive me, Repentance sounds something more like this. I'm so sorry that I said or did X, Y, Z about you. And you name it. I slandered you before the Lord. I hurt you before the Lord and before others. And I can understand why you would be very angry and hurt by my actions. And I've confessed them as sin before the Lord. I'm confessing them before you. 
And I'm going to actively seek to repair the damage that has been done in your life. I humbly ask for your forgiveness. That's repentance. Because it deals with guilt. The specific, honest guilt of what I've done to harm. And it takes offense before the Lord as the primary. Frees me to be humble in coming back to you. That's repentance. Does it sound humiliating? Perhaps it sounds like a miserable thing to you. Or is it freeing? To be able by the grace of God to admit our offenses without trying to manage circumstances. And have a power at work within us that will enable us to take steps to repair what is broken. We repent as a lifestyle because we keep on sinning. We repent as a lifestyle because Jesus keeps on forgiving. And we repent as a lifestyle because the Spirit keeps on changing us. So in this 499th anniversary of the Reformation, let's take a page out of Luther's playbook. How about a reformation in your own soul? Let's begin with repentance. That grace of and joy of repentance because your guilt has been nailed to the cross and the Spirit is alive within you and me to change us from the inside out. As we lay down our guilt at the cross and we receive a smiling Heavenly Father empowering us to be reminded by His love, we turn in humility toward one another to repair what is broken. And then we begin to see the power of Reformation truth birthed in our community. So let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have not left us to ourselves. We thank You that You have shown us. You've shown us what counterfeit looks like and You've shown us what truth looks like in our repentance. And we pray that by Your grace, we pray that taking long looks at the cross will enable us to lay down our guilt and lead to salvation without regret. That we may enter into one another's lives in humility and truly repent, taking ownership and responsibility for what we have done in harming one another because it is an offense against you first. And enable us in humility to seek to repair the damage that we have done through all and any manner of sins in our lives. We trust You because You are continually at work within us. We pray for a reformation in our souls. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.